Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Frostholm, at jfrostholm on Twitter. Creative South is coming up in a month, and there are only about 100 tickets left, but there are plenty of spots remaining in the workshops. Whether you want to learn about digital painting from Raji King or icon design from Meg Robichaux to setting up lighting for your photography with Alicia Cologne, there's a workshop for you. If you haven't picked up your tickets yet or if you still need to sign up for a workshop, head over to creativesouthga.com and register today. My guest this week is Brian Manley of Fun With Robots Design Company. He's worked with bands like Manchester United and Taking Back Sunday, as well as top chef Kevin Gillespie. I talk with Brian about everything from starting off working in youth ministry in Southern California, to punk music, to dealing with imposter syndrome and figuring out where you fit in, to barbecue right after this. Ever find yourself looking for well-designed apparel from your favorite state? Have you created a state-related shirt and wanted to get more exposure? 50 States Apparel would like to invite you to be part of their community. A group of designers just like you creating awesome apparel to represent their favorite places across America. 50 States is curated by a congress of talented designers and helps the community to produce and promote their apparel. It's a one-stop shop to find state apparel. Creative South podcast listeners get 15% off using the code HUGNEXT. That's all one word. Check it out today at 50statesapparel.com. That's 50statesapparel.com. So, um, I'm going to hit start. So, I'm going to hit start. I will dive right into it. Let's do it. Start. Cool. Um, so, I am here today with Brian Manley. Uh, fun with robots design. Um, so Brian, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up in Northwest Ohio, like maybe 30 minutes from Michigan and like 40 minutes from Indiana, like right there in the Northwest corner of Ohio and a pretty small town of like 10,000 people. Um, middle of nowhere, didn't have a whole lot of culture, but it was a nice, one of those towns that was voted best 100 towns in North America in like the mid eighties or whatever. And now it's pretty run down and pretty beat up. Mm-hmm. But I grew up there and, uh, kind of in a farming community. My dad was in manufacturing and, uh, yeah, I was just a little punk rock kid who wanted to get the heck out of small town, Ohio. So you're a Midwestern kid who uh, is in the South now. How long have you been down in uh, Atlanta area? Um, yeah, I've been in Atlanta now for about seven years. There's a little detour. I went to college in Indiana Met my wife there. We moved to Southern California. Okay. We did like six years in Southern California. I say that like it's a prison sentence, but we, it was a good time. We went to Southern California for like six years, and then I just wanted to get closer to family this way. All my folks were in Charlotte. My brother and his uh, girlfriend at the time were in Charlotte, so mm-hmm. we decided to move this way because I got a job here being a designer at a upstart web company. Okay. So I know, you know, when you – talked at creative south you um said you got your start um in youth ministry mm-hmm. and you, you went did you go to school for that i seem to remember you saying that yeah i have a, my bachelor's degree my degree is actually in youth ministry and i think biblical studies like somewhere thrown in there so but primarily youth ministry which uh i don't use at all anymore I would imagine that doesn't come in real handy with graphic design. Not so much, but it comes in handy sometimes when working with churches and things like that. You can kind of know the jargon, know the lingo, how to talk to churches and people that work in the church. But yeah, I'm still paying off that college loan and I don't use it all. <laughs> I know that feeling and I still use mine every day. That's good. So <laughs> yeah, at least I'm using it. The uh, paying for it part, I think will uh, end sometime after my grandchildren die. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Mine, I just keep hoping to work harder now to pay it off so I don't feel so guilty. Because I just look at my, my youth ministry degree and I just go, man, I just want my college to leave me alone, stop bothering me. Because they, mm-hmm. they send me a letter in the mail like once a week going, hey, we lost track of you. Can you give us some money? It's like, let me pay off my loan first. Mm-hmm. Then maybe we can talk and we'll see. But you guys are kind of weird now. I realize you're kind of a little crazy evangelical nutbags. So I'm going to maybe step away for a minute. So did that have the you know the crazy evangelical nutbag? Uh, did that have anything for to do with you kind of transitioning, or was it just uh, you know since it was youth ministry working with teenagers that uh, drove it out of you? <laughs> well, I, I liked working with the high school kids. Dealing with their parents was kind of a pain, um, but it was really the bureaucracy of working within the church confines. Like 
the long and short of it is, in central Orange County, where I was working at this mega church, it was called mm. the Crystal Cathedral. It had a TV show. It, it was a mega pastor guy, and it was a big deal. But we were in the heart of Orange County, which was surrounded by like 60 or 70% Latino and Asian families. Sure. And all the church wanted us to reach out to, it seemed like at the time, was rich white kids from the south side of the county. And it just didn't make any sense. So we'd be reaching these kids. Like we even had a, a time where uh, an Asian gang came to one of our youth programs and jumped a guy and jumped his family and like attacked his mom. I mean, we were in the heart of the hood, really. Um, and all they ever wanted was just like to reach out to like these rich white kids. And so there was a, it's just a struggle for me the whole time of just the bureaucracy of working within a big church and where you're trying to make a difference in the world, but uh, you're telling me, you know, you're saying one thing and you're telling me another. So the, the impetus for me to leave, and by the way, the whole time I was working uh, as a youth pastor, you have to kind of make your own flyers. You have to make your own marketing sure. materials. And like I said, at Creative South, my dad used to come home from China with like bootleg Photoshop software. And he'd be like, here's a disc with like 400 programs. And I'd figure out Photoshop and I'd tool around with it. And I knew a little bit. Um, and I learned some other graphics programs along the way. And in youth ministry it, it, in Southern California, I would make like all the big posters for the big, uh, big rah-rah events we would do. Or I would help out other church. It slowly happened where I'd help other church ministries like, hey, we're doing like this men's night thing. Can we have a poster or design? I'm like, sure. So I design it. Um, so that was happening in the kind of the background as I was doing work with high school kids. But then I remember one day we had a big um, winter camp where we took these high school kids to the mountains like in uh, Big Bear, uh, Big Bear Lake. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so what's crazy is like you can surf in the morning, drive up to Big Bear and snowboard that afternoon. Like It was just the craziest place we lived. So we take these kids up and we needed a second bus because we had so many kids signed up for this event. And I asked the church, I'm like, hey, can you float me some extra bucks to get this bus? And they're like, hey, we don't have the money right now. We can't. Smash cut to like a day later, I see the pastor of our church is in a brand new limousine. Because his previous limousine, I got, and no joke, this is the, the drama you hear in, behind the scenes. He didn't like the previous limousine. It wasn't high class enough. So they offed it and got a new one. And when I was thinking, like, I'm just trying to take these rough-edged kids up to the mountains and, like, just let them get away and chill and think and kind of focus on themselves. Uh, and then this guy just wants a limo. I'm like, this is enough. I've, I've had, I've, I've got to plan my exit. And that's kind of what happened. Yeah, so you're trying to do good and he's trying to make a buck. Yeah. And, and, and ironically, since, like, I saw the writing on the wall that the, the place is falling apart. I don't mean to talk too much trash about that place, but... Right. Uh, they don't really exist anymore. They lost so much money and came into so much debt. They had to sell their giant property. Um, and I think they sold it to the Catholic Church there in Orange County. So the whole thing disintegrated in five or six years after I left. So I'm glad mm -hmm. I left when I did. But the whole process of it and kind of the hypocrisy of everything frustrated me to no end. And I said, I got to get out of here. Just so happened that I was pretty talented as uh, a creative guy. And uh, a good buddy of mine named Luke Micey at the time had a studio in Old Town, Orange, California. And he said, hey, come do some tiny jobs for me here and there, just some spec work, some free stuff, just to see how it goes. And he kind of helped me get my start, kind of got me ripping and roaring into design. Cool. So, you you know, you kind of pick up at that point and you're you're – getting into more design and all and you eventually transition out now do you just when you transition out from working at the church and going into design are you doing it on your own or did you go work for a company and then decide to go out on your own or well, what happened was i was working with luke for a little bit again i don't remember the full specs of it i just remember sure from the minute i left someone was always kind of taking care of me i think people maybe knew my story liked me as a person felt bad for me a little bit they would throw me a little work here and there and as you know, even a little work when you're first starting out feels huge. And so you're oh, yeah. so excited. You're like, oh, my goodness, they let me do this Mother's Day event thing. And you're like, oh, I'm going to make it so cute with flowers and stuff. And it was fun doing that. It wasn't making me much money. But around that same time, uh, a friend of a friend here in Atlanta said, hey, I'm, I'm a designer at this upstart web company. We've created this brilliant thing. This is, again, keep in mind, this is as CDs are kind of transitioning to the iPod realm. And uh -huh. they created this idea where you buy a digital download card. And that's where that – so at a, at a live show, you'd go see a band. You'd buy a download card. And so you go home and go, sweet, instead of buying a CD, 
and all the manufacturing costs and that, you buy a little card, go home and download the record. And so they hired me. I said, heck yeah, let's just foolishly leave everything we know in Southern California. Let's go to Georgia. We moved with some friends and I started working at that company. It was a good time. It was the first time I was officially a real designer. It said it on my business card. And six months later, the company ran out of money. Um, and by the way, it's no joke. The day my grandpa died, and my grandpa and I were pretty close. The day my grandpa died in Ohio was the same mm -hmm. day they had to drop the news to me and everybody that, hey, we're shutting the doors and everyone's got to go. So I'm out mm -hmm. in my car crying because I'm just talking to my dad saying, hey, grandpa passed away. And my boss comes out and goes, hey, before you leave, can I tell you one more thing? And it was just the weirdest, like, I just moved here from Southern California. I don't really know anybody. I've got a small group of friends here in the music scene in Atlanta. My sure. grandpa's now dead. When I get back from all the funeral stuff in Ohio, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And much like in Southern California, when I was starting out in design, people just started throwing me work. It was the weirdest thing. Mm -hmm. uh, a big church here in Southern or in Georgia, rather, uh, contacted me and said, hey, we heard you're a designer. We kind of like some of the work you have on your terrible website. Uh, can we hire you for a project? I was like, sure, why not? And that's kind of how then Fun with Robots kind of began. Because I realized one day that like an out-of-work designer that still has skills, if they can find the work, they can still be in work, if that makes sense. Sure. They can still yeah. make money. It's going to be a hustle, and some people don't have the hustle gene, but it's going to be a hustle and it's going to be a slog. But you've got a skill. you just got to put it to use. Right. So, yeah, I think that's one of the, it's and I know with my parents, that's a uh, hard thing to convince that freelance does not mean unemployed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just it's, it means I work for myself. Um, I mean, thankfully, I have, you know, I have the luxury of I get to do freelance on the side because sure. um, I have a full time job. I actually work for an engineering firm Nice. as the loan in-house creative there. But my wife's a full time freelancer. She's got her own business and, you know, she's a graphic designer as well. And I, I, th I completely agree with you. The minute somebody throws you a job, it, it to this day it still feels huge to me. Oh, like you, you want to work with me? Yeah. <laughs> no, there's no doubt. Like I, I still marvel at like the new contacts that come through my emails all the time, and I just go, mm -hmm. "This is so great!" Like the train keeps rolling momentum-wise. Thus, like it's hard for me, and you probably know this too, is as a freelancer, there's no downtime, there's no stop time really, because you've technically got 20 to 30 bosses at one time oh, all yeah. the different plates you're spinning are all on different timetables all on different schedules and everyone is going hey we need this so like over the christmas break i really couldn't step away i tried but mm -hmm. it's a, you know some people have the uh they just go hey we're gonna leave this guy alone to jan one and of course jan one is like a huge like ah tons of emails hey we need this project but i just never can take a break i can't I can't slow down enough to like, because I'm, I'm truthfully a little afraid that if I slow down and it kind of dies down, it's done and it's over and I'm forever a sham. <laughs> so do you, I mean, because you mentioned this in your Creative South Talk too, that you kind of feel like an imposter a little bit because you've, you know, you started out, you know, in youth ministry and then you don't have a formal design education. I mean, I think your work speaks for itself that okay. you don't need an education to be good at it, <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, now there are exceptions to that rule. Sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think we've all seen them. Yeah. Um, but do you still feel a little bit of that imposter syndrome sometimes? Absolutely. I, it's so funny. I just read an article yesterday about the imposter syndrome. Some authors got a new book coming out that I added to my Amazon like request list about the imposter syndrome. And, mm -hmm. uh, it somehow it, I know it's not real. My wife tells me all the time, you're amazing. You're great you're just in your head, but deep down in your core, you just feel like you're going to get found out as a fraud at some point. For case in point, um, I, I cannot draw very well. I'm, and as a creative, and especially as I see all the amazing illustrators that are doing amazing stuff with just dip -a -doop, and they have an amazing script font they've created in three seconds. I'm just like, yeah, my drawings look like my two-year-old daughter did them. And it's cute when she does it, but I call myself a quote-unquote professional. Like if someone, like, if I ever did Ink Wars, I would either be the most insane, brilliant, abstract artist of all time, or I'd be laughed out of the building. Because mm -hmm. it's just, I feel like my drawings are sloppy. But, last night, I was watching the Jean-Michel Basquiat documentary. Are you familiar with Basquiat, the abstract expressionist? Yeah, yeah. And 
I was watching and just focusing in that his lines are so immature and so um, his drawing is very just kind of crude and gross. Like he would not make a good graphic designer, which I felt good in that moment. Like, hey, I can't draw very well either. God bless technology. I have the access of a computer and some editing tools and things like that. Um, but if Basquiat can can make a go of it, I'm not, and I haven't been found out yet, I'm okay. I feel good. I'm I'm the same way. I and especially since I work at such a fast pace with at work that ideation and putting paper to pen a lot of times. And I know I shouldn't do this, but I end up having to skip that step. Sure. So my my drawing skills are nowhere, and I don't think they ever really were, are nowhere where they should be for a professional, quote-unquote, artist. But for a graphic designer, I do okay. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's one of those fake-it-till-you-make-it kind of things where if you can convince someone that it's brilliant, like, hey, they're they're paying for the product and people say it's brilliant. I did a t-shirt for my buddy Kevin Devine a few years ago. He wanted me to draw a picture of like a New York bodega and I got mm-hmm. some like crazy paintbrush marker pen and intentionally kind of drew it crude, but inten- mm-hmm. but kind of did the best I could to draw this like bodega and a bicycle leaning against it. And when he saw it, he thought it was brilliant. And when I look at it now, I just think, wow, that is the best I can do. And it is miserable. But <laughs> if it works for the client, it works for the person who's paying for it. It works for the people who wear it. I- I'm totally happy. I'm I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one who has that problem. Yeah, no, we should start a little society of people who don't draw so good because yeah. like it's just it's one of those things. Especially you know you go to Creative South and and there's amazing illustrators who are just so fluid oh, yeah. and beautiful with the brush or with a marker or with a pen. You're like, all right, this is I can't do this. Yeah, that that's my that's my thing, and I know part of it is just self discipline of sitting down and taking more time to do it. Yeah, but do you so do you feel with your the imposter syndrome and i i always hate calling it that because i feel like that's giving it a bad name um do you feel like that's one of those things that motivates you to do more though oh absolutely and the busier you are the less you feel it um Mm -hmm. and also like yeah the busier i am the more and the more i see emails coming in and projects that i know i can tackle um Mm -hmm. makes me feel like okay i can stave this off for a few more days Uh, i definitely feel it like at the end of the holiday where I'm like, okay, my email's not pinging as much as it should have been. Or at the end of the <laughs> summer where you're kind of like, oh no, have I been found out? That's where it gets a little, um, I get a little bit of my... A little stressful. Yeah, a little stressful. But at the same time, I have to look back at my track record a little bit. All right, I've been in business, stayed busy, kept my family fed for the past few years. Like, mm-hmm. short of something crazy happening, I can't imagine it's going to change a whole lot. And I have to kind of go, okay, tomorrow's another day, let's do it. Gotcha. So, you know, I know you've done a lot of stuff with, um, like, Taking Back Sunday mm-hmm. and some other fairly large-name bands out there. Is that where, you know, you kind of find a passion in music, or is it just a happy coincidence that you get a lot of work that way? No, absolutely. It's all passion. Like, that's one thing that I love more than anything is doing music packaging and music-related stuff. Uh, as mm-hmm. a kid growing up in Ohio... There's no real record stores nearby. The closest one was an hour away, and it might have been in a mall, and it just had garbage music. Um, so it's the Sam Goody that uh, has the bargain bin. Yeah. You're lucky if you find a uh, Fugazi album. Oh, and, yeah. And because no one has bought it because they don't know how to pronounce it. Exactly. The Fugazi record is just hiding behind uh, some other F band or something. Yeah, I, I, but I was just so into music as a kid, and this is pre-internet where you had to hunt down your records. So... You got good music through your friends at school, or if you made a trip to a record store and they were playing something, or the guy that you thought was cool at the record store said, hey, you should listen to this, you pick it up. Um, and so my buddies and I, kind of a small group of friends in, in Northwest Ohio who were all kind of like in love with music. And so you'd get it through catalogs, and you'd get it through um, zines, and you'd get it through those go hunting for records. And so when you get one, that's awesome. And the artwork, and, and especially in the indie music scene, was always on point. Like there's always right. amazing artists and amazing design and amazing layouts and these things. And I remember I wasn't studying them going, one day I'll do this, but I was studying them because I was just obsessed with the look, trying to figure out what are they doing? What is happening here that makes me just, this connects to the music that I love so much. And even to this day, um, I still just all day long, I'm listening to music. I'm trying to turn friends on to music and uh, discover new bands. And so it's one of those things I haven't grown mm-hmm. out of, like, especially because I grew up in like the punk rock hardcore world. Uh, 
my parents would always say, one day you're going to grow out of this and just laugh at the music you used to listen to. It turns out I'm listening to weirder and weirder music the older I get, which is really nice. Um, yeah, I'm the same way. That's good. Because like, <laughs> yeah. I, so most of those things now, like, I can't have it heavy enough. My wife will walk into the room and she's like, you need to turn this off. It sounds like someone's being murdered. I'm like, well, I think it sounds awesome. It's cathartic and it's helping my art. Um, <laughs> and then she reminds you that you have a two-year-old daughter and yeah. teaching her um, to scream like uh, she's you know, being killed by a family of serial killers <laughs> is maybe not a good thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm trying to teach my daughter also to be tough a little bit, like have an edge. Like I don't ever want her to walk into a punk club one day and be like, I'm scared. I want her to be like, I know what this is. I've been here. I know I know more than everyone in this room. So that's my goal. If I can, again, we all want to make our kids like some sort of form of what we are. I want her just to be super proficient in music and walk around like, I know what's going on here. Um, but back to the design thing, as far as me wanting to do it, I just always was like, that was my thing. Um, probably subconsciously, I just wanted to always be involved in music and art. Mm-hmm. But being like a dorky youth pastor guy, like still being the cool guy who turned people on to music and stuff, I had no outlet for it. And by the grace of God, um, a friend of a friend was in a band, or a friend uh, uh, at the time, a husband of a good friend from high school was in a really good band on a record label called the Militia Group that, believe it or not, at the time, was like three blocks from my house when I lived in Anaheim. They're like, hey, come over and meet my friend Chad. And Chad had worked at Tooth & Nail Records, had Militia Group Records, which is amazing, and just had a lot of good bands happen in the indie world. And he would take chances on me and say, hey, can you help us design like this comp thing or whatever? And that was just the biggest job in the world. Even one time, uh, he said, you want to be our in-house designer? And I thought, oh my goodness, I don't, I'm, I'm trying to follow this ministry career at the time. I'm like, I can't leave this to go do this other thing that I'm definitely not qualified for. Because anyone can do one or two or three good designs over the span of like six months. But to try to create great art all the time, when you have really no training, no idea what you're doing, I just, I had to turn it down, which was a bummer. Um, but then... Like, I got to meet some cool people through that. Like, Matt Moss, the bassist of Cold War Kids, became their designer. Mm-hmm. And I uh, got to know him, and he turned me on to some good art. And then studying his art was just a really a treat for me. Um, but, yeah, and then through Chad and through some other relationships, uh, they all connected me to different record labels or bands or management. And mm-hmm. um, that's kind of how I got my, my start going. So is this how you kind of got in with uh, Disc Revolt? Mm. The Disc Revolt thing was that, that card service I was talking about earlier. Okay. They were the ones that hired me from Southern California. That's who I I, I knew oh, okay. about them through Chad. And then at Disc Revolt, it was the weirdest thing. Like, you know, there's just there's those stories where you hear about like Steve Jobs just happened to be in the one town that had the supercomputer four blocks from his house. The only supercomputer sure. on the planet. Uh, and when I first moved to Atlanta, I just felt like the coolest musician people that were young at the time were working at Disc Revolt in some capacity. And so at Disc Revolt at the time, uh, the some of the guys in the band Manchester Orchestra were involved with Disc Revolt. Uh, my buddy Andy Lee or Andrew Thomas Lee, who's an amazing photographer, was working at Disc Revolt at the time. Uh, a bunch of other musicians from a bunch of great bands. And when mm-hmm. the whole thing disbanded, we all kind of reconnected outside of the workplace. And as everyone's pro- projects or bands got going, next thing you know, uh, we were doing some cool design stuff. And the thing that really took off for me was one day when I got a call. I, was, I remember driving down 75, um, 75 from Marietta into downtown Atlanta. I got a call, and it's like, hey, this is Jeremiah from Manchester Orchestra. We had a kind of a situation with our designer. Uh, we're working on a new record. Do you want to take a stab at artwork for this record? And I was like, oh, my goodness, yes. And that was a major label. Uh, my first real, like, oh, my goodness, let's do this. And the crazy thing at the time, too, is I'm really into photography, and I love old analog mm-hmm. photography. And they were like, hey, we want to do this thing that is all based on Polaroid film. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is my wheelhouse. And so that's where the Mean Everything to Nothing record came about and doing all this stuff for them. And so for the last umpteen years, it feels like, but it's only been like seven or eight, I've been working with those guys on artwork and posters and stuff like that. So so you mentioned the Polaroid thing. I know on like your Instagram account, you, you know, for a long time, and I'm sure you still do it. I just don't stalk people that much anymore. <laughs> um, you've posted like tons of just these like instant Polaroid pictures that you would take. Yeah. Um, was that just, you know, going out, having fun, noticing something while you were out? Or was that 
a specific project that you had in mind? I mean, not, I don't necessarily mean yeah. a work project, but like a you know project for yourself that you wanted to tackle. No, that was a me project. It's one of those things, you know, at the first of the year, everyone says, I'm going to do this. My New Year's resolution is to drop 20 pounds or it's mm-hmm. to do this or paint an illustration a day. Like the day before Jan 1 last year, I was like, I'm going to take one Polaroid a day for the year. This could be really great. Get me out of the office more because if if it wasn't if it was not up to just getting fatter by the day and not having meetings, I would just <laughs> sit here in my desk all day and just grind out work and watch YouTube videos and stuff. And so I was like, I'm going to take a Polaroid a day, get me out of the office and stuff. And I was faithful to it through July, and it, it became a grind. And at a certain point, it flipped and it become instead of becoming a joy, it was a pain, and it. I just dreaded waking up going, I have to take a stupid Polaroid. Again, these are completely self-imposed rules. It wasn't like right. someone's paying me $10 million to take a Polaroid a day. I just was doing it for the sake of doing it. And I just thought, that's it. I'm done. And the minute I stopped doing it, I was like, oh, the world hasn't changed. No one's asking me, like, where'd they go? And mm-hmm. I was just like, okay, cool. I feel better. So now I'm taking more Polaroids as I see fit. But it was a fun process. It just it became... Yeah. It took the joy out of the reason I started doing it, which is really interesting. If you overdo it and force yourself to do it, it no longer becomes fun. Yeah, I, I've had a few self-imposed projects like that where I just I went from not doing anything to doing something all of the time, yeah. and it sucked the fun out of it. And and I think that's a good time when you know it's time to stop. Is if it's not fun anymore and it's becoming a chore, any chore, then you're gonna burn yourself out. And I think. I think career-wise, a lot of people miss that too, and they get stuck in these jobs that are just miserable to them. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Well, they say you have to find so, a way to pivot. So, like, I then turned all that energy about Polaroid stuff, and around that same time, mm-hmm. uh, I was working with a restaurant that was opening up in town, and they wanted to do this big feature piece uh, celebrating uh, the chef's two grandmothers. And I had all this film laying around, and I had all this knowledge about film, and so I did this weird collage. Uh, for the for this restaurant revival uh, here in downtown Decatur, uh, obviously. So th- this is Kevin Gillespie's. Ke- place, yeah, right? Kevin Gillespie's place. Yeah. Yeah. Are you hip to Kevin Gillespie? Are you? I yeah, I discovered him on uh, Top Chef. Yeah. My wife and I, for the first several seasons, watched it religiously, and he was he was by far our favorite. And that was that was an interesting year because there were a ton of people from Atlanta on that year. Yeah, there was like three or too. four people, and all of those people, I think. Uh, Hector, I think, was the one guy. He just opened up a new place in mid or in uh, oh goodness, Krog. Oh, what is it? Pont City Market, and it's like a sandwich mm-hmm. place. It's amazing. Um, everyone's doing good stuff, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, somehow again, I I hitched my wagon to another good one through good relationships. Like mm-hmm. that's a whole other story. If you want to ask me about it, you can. But <laughs> <laughs> I will. Um, it's on my list. I'm good. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> but yeah, the Polaroid thing just kind of came about. I, it's a passion for mine, but it's extremely expensive. And it, that also yeah. sucks the fun out of it because back in the day, pack of Polaroid film used to be 10, 12 bucks. Now for eight shots, it's like 25 bucks. And you've got to search on eBay and hope that it's usable. Well, there's fun. actually a company now called The Impossible Project that is actually oh, really? making it. It's a long nerd story, but like when Polaroid dismantled all their gear and said, we're done making film, this company got together and said, let's try to redo it. But Polaroid so quickly had disbanded everything that they had mm-hmm. been making all the film on. They've been kind of piecemealing together and figuring out how this chemistry works. And I've been following them for like the past five, six years, buying their film and having a pack of film be a complete dud. But it's all experimentation. It's all for fun. It's all just for like, let's hope we can do something with this. But as a creative and as a designer, I can take some of those textures and elements and go, all right, I'm going to scan this and use it in for a, some texture and some project. So it's not a complete loss, you know. What was it Bob Ross used to say? Happy accident? Yeah, it was absolutely a happy accident. Yeah. That's what I like to think, too. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of those. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they are just not so happy accidents. Well, it's when you force something. You're like, <laughs> I know it'll be a happy accident. It will just be a total turd. But then when you're like, what if I just peel this thing apart and scan it? You're like, that's brilliant. Shelf it. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden, when the right project comes along, you're like, that's where that needs to go. Well, I think that organic process that comes from when something screws up. Yeah. If you can not like beat yourself up about it and find a way to do something with it, or even just set it aside for a minute, and you know, when you kind of look over at your desk, like oh, I'm gonna throw this. Oh, I could use that for what I'm working on. Yeah, now. I think that's that's a that's always a cool thing that happens a lot of times. Absolutely. And 
what's interesting about the Polaroid thing and those kind of like happy accidents and, and of, of inspiration and add on later is I like what I like about it is it's, it's an organic chemistry that is happening inside of a film. So you're going to get mistakes. You're going to get weirdness where digital mm. photography as beautiful as it is, is perfect. And so I almost feel like in a certain sense, a lot of my design, I guess, is this way to be blowhardy and say a lot of my design, but, um, <laughs> but to, it's a lot of my design. I try like it's. it's I, I don't like it to be too clean. I like it to be a little organic, a little bit natural. And perhaps that's right. my draw like Polaroids, because you'll shoot a picture and you'll think it's composed perfectly, and for some unknown reason the chemistry's funky or dry or it's too cold or whatever, and the film comes out crazy, not what you wanted. Mm -hmm. But months later when you look at it, you're like oh that was kind of awesome. Yeah. So uh, you you mentioned something about weird, and so I'm going to take you back to Creative oh, South brilliant. of your. Um, follow your weird um you know <laughs> when did it dawn on you that you were the weird kid and you know what what made you embrace it well i was thinking about that i think about that a lot leading up to creative south on the way back going is that really fair to say i'm the weird kid because i had a pretty normal uh childhood growing up but i think it was my mom and my dad who were just like pretty run-of-the-mill normal parents who my dad was in like right. the lions club or whatever and whatever and he worked for a good company and just did the American thing. And then here's their kid listening to crazy punk rock music, just wanting to go out with his friends every weekend to some weird show or having his, I remember in high school, my dad trying to drive me to some punk show in Toledo, Ohio that <laughs> may or may not have been at a strip club or next to a strip club. And so I just felt like I was the odd man out. My brother's a pretty run the mill dude where like in high school, at least he was like the star athlete and, the good dude, and I was just a musician guy who wanted to um, just keep following music and, and punk rock and, and creative things like that. So I wasn't super weird. Like, I wasn't the guy who dyed my hair purple, but at the same time, I always felt like it was a little abnormal, if that makes sense. Like, I wasn't going down the normal path. Case in point, I get a really expensive degree in youth ministry and decide <laughs> eight years, six years in to scrap it and go somewhere else. So. Yeah, and I, and I didn't mean that, you know, and I don't think you took it this way, but I didn't mean it in a derogatory sense of weird because I think yeah. I think a lot of us in the business, you know, we're kind of that outsider kid of, you know, we can be completely led fairly normal lives, but it just wasn't in line with the life that everybody else around us was living. Sure, and I, I think part of that comes from, especially growing up in the Midwest in a small town, um, and it's pre-internet kind of stuff where, like, you didn't realize subcultures existed. There was just culture. No. Yeah, exactly. And then all of a sudden, as you get older or as things kind of open up to you, like, oh, my goodness, there's subcultures within subcultures. And you start going, that's where I need to be, not out here in this broad place. I need to kind of drill down and go, this is my wheelhouse. And mm -hmm. um, that journey of figuring that out, I think, made, makes you feel weird the whole time. But when you discover it, you're like, I'm amongst my brothers and sisters, be it creatively, be it whatever weird sort of comic book, you know, whatever it may be thing you're into. As you drill down and find that, you kind of go, I'm a weirdo, but amongst these people, I am safe. And that's what Creative South is in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, you kind of realize we're all these nerds taking over Columbus, Georgia, and but we're amongst ourselves and we're no longer the weird ones. They're the weird ones, you know? Yeah. Townies. Which is always nice. Cause it's, you, you know, there's, there's a tendency among graphic designers for us to be a lot of introverts. Yeah. And, well, maybe not introverts is the right word, but a lot of um, socially awkward and shy people who are not always the most outgoing, sure. but you get a bunch of uh, design nerds in a room and, you will hear us talk for hours endlessly about kerning. For <laughs> exactly. And, I, and, and, and at those times, those conversations are hilarious. Oh, yeah. And I, and but if you try to tell your wife about it, she's going to look at you and go, what? Yeah, exactly. But she works in HR, and she'll come back from like <laughs> this uh, HR convention thing, and we'll start talking. I'm like, okay, I'm glazing over here. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't. And so I understand where when I get excited about, have you seen this new font? She's like, move on, yeah. pal. So. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind the new font. Have you seen that new sexual harassment video that we're going to show them? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, she's not quite that crazy, but she'll usually come home and be like, hey, uh, so I had an associate try to assault me today or threaten my life. I'm like, oh, your job is actually dangerous. I sit behind a computer yes. all day and you have to be you have to have security walking out to the parking garage. Gotcha. Yeah. You're way tougher than and, I am. And, and as her husband, I'm sure the... Um, anger bubble goes off in your head for a second of what yeah he did 
<laughs> I know. It, it, luckily, I know the security there at her hotel is nice, and they're they're good people, and they'll take care of her. There's a part of me, yeah, that definitely wants to defend. I remember ages ago, I think we were just married, living in Anaheim. We were leaving a Anaheim Angels game, and some dude. I was walking behind my wife, and it was my wife and some two friends in front of her. And some guy came up and like was looking at my wife's rear end and going "ooh la la" or said some horrible thing. And I just erupted into "listen, MF, I'm gonna" bl-, and I just started screaming obscenities <laughs> at this guy. And my friends were like, uh, "Dude, are you all right?" And it, again, the defense bubble jumps up and says, "Okay," but that's really the last time it's happened. <laughs> well, that's yeah. Good. <laughs> Probably for your own sake. Yeah, I probably would have been killed now, given uh, after what happened to the Dodgers game a couple of years ago when that dude got stomped to death. Things like that. I don't want that to oh, happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking of when you mentioned it, too. I know. As soon as I'm saying I'm like, oh, yeah, Southern California has horrible sports fans. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Everywhere that's has true. horrible that's sports true. fans. I live in Alabama. Oh, dude. And, you know, since University of Alabama just won the uh, national championship – Anywhere I go, there will be violent, um, as my voice cracks there, <laughs> violent calling out of Roll Tide. And if someone doesn't respond properly or says War Eagle or something yeah. like that, there will be a fist fight that will erupt in the Walmart parking lot. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I, my next, my neighbor across the street from me is a huge Alabama fan, has like his master's mm-hmm. or doctorate from Alabama. And uh, being an Ohio State fan, we go to blows. We hang out all the time. We both have like roots in punk rock and stuff. And but when it comes to college football season, it gets violent. Like the text, hate text he'll send me and vice versa. Like when we beat Alabama last year, he, mm-hmm. he just kind of went into this, please just don't talk. I do not want to hear you say anything. But as soon as Alabama wins this year, what's he doing? He's gloating at me going, we're the national champs. How many rings do we got? I'm like, all right, dude. <laughs> so he's talking. Yeah, to exactly. And he's much <laughs> like your friends at Walmart who are. I guess this one, I would not call them my friends. Well, friends by proxy, I guess. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I just have to shop there because I live in a small town on the outskirts of a city. Hey man, Walmart's where it happens in a small town. That's like the new. It is. New central, it is central part of the community. It's yeah, so, it's it, it's a part of something. Yeah, but in the town I grew up in, Ohio, when Walmart came to town, it was like everyone stopped what they did and went to the grand opening. Because, mm-hmm. again, like we were talking about earlier, it's like culture finally came to our community. We had no idea it was like this false, homogenized, horrible culture. I mean, whatever. Take it for what it is. But uh, coming to Atlanta, or Atlanta, to Bryan, Ohio, but at the same time, you're like, hey, I can now buy that Kiss cover album at Walmart. And so you're excited about that. Yeah, that, <laughs> that was nice. Yeah, so I, I, um, I grew up all over the place, but I went to high school in central Kentucky. And, you know, going back to talking about, you know, finding that niche where you fit in, you know, up until then, I always, you know, I was kind of always the outsider kid because I was I was a know-it-all kid (laughs) and, you know, I wasn't I wasn't jockey and I was the one who sat around drawing all the time. But when we moved to Kentucky, I was still very much the outsider because they're, you know, such a small town in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's literally the geographic center of Kentucky. (laughs) <laughs> and but for whatever reason the walmart there had an awesome music set yeah i mean this is where i like discovered like dinosaur jr and like got fugazi and uh they had a dead milkman Weird. album and it was just like yeah like something obviously walmart is not supposed to be ordering but that store manager was like yeah i'm gonna order this and you know i, I kind of discovered that and by proxy you know ended up discovering the kids that I would become friends with who, even though I have absolutely no athletic coordination whatsoever, because they were all the skaters mm-hmm. um, there, I fit in with them because of all of our other interests, because they were all the art kids and they were all the kids listening to cool music. And, you know, but they were, you know, you're still in Kentucky, so you still get assaulted with lots of Milli Vanilli, and, <laughs> you know, new kids on the block, yeah. which is unavoidable because it just permeates sure. everywhere it's, it's on the radio and that's what that's the heart of community was back in the day or yeah heart of culture yeah yeah very much so and i mean like i said i mean we were literally 80 miles from every we were living we were 80 miles from louisville 80 miles from lexington 80 miles from bowling green so on a clear night you could pick up one college oh. radio station that had cool stuff yeah. and it was like that light going off in my head and I would stay up and I would listen to it and I'd like 
for some reason stuff would pop into my head of ideas that I had never thought of before of drawing stuff. So it was always, it, that was my way in to getting into art. So I always, awesome. I always very much appreciated that. So when I see stuff like what you've done with like the taking back Sunday and the other band stuff, it, it reminds me of that time, which I, I really appreciate. That's awesome. Thanks man. Yeah. I mean, I try to hearken all the way back to stuff that I, I mean, I totally ape lots of looks and designs from the stuff I grew up loving. Like there's a band I work mm-hmm. with right now called all get out and I've done their past couple records and mm-hmm. we always talk about artwork for the bands like referencing old stuff like uh this old label polyvinyl they still put out amazing records but polyvinyl back in the day used to create they had american football and aloha and a bunch mm-hmm. of amazing bands that their artwork was so iconic and amazing that we just try to right. steal elements from that because it's not again we don't see it being done and it's the stuff that we stinking loved back in the day and now that there's kind of this emo revival happening in music, the bands like American <laughs> Football um, like played uh, Shaky Knees Music Festival here in Atlanta last year, and it was like, I've never seen an indie band that used to play tiny, tiny, tiny clubs 20 or 15 years ago feel like a festival stage. It was amazing. Yeah. So, you know, when you're working with these bands, are you are you working with them directly, or are you kind of working through their management, or Ugh. do you feel... A, is it just kind of run the game? It all depends. I mean, I work a lot with uh, with hopeless record bands. I work with someone at the label. They kind of. They, I love the name of that. Uh, hopeless records. Hopeless. It's. Yeah. It, I think the guy came up with the name like in the mid late nineties, so it feels very nineties, like very grunge. Mm-hmm. And but now they're all about like they have a whole five hundred one three C wing of their business that is all about giving back oh, cool. and stuff, which is cool. But they. Uh, I deal with someone at the label or if it's a friend's band or a band that emails me directly, I'll work with them directly. Sometimes it's through management. You'd be shocked mm-hmm. how insane um, it is to communicate with certain bands uh, in 2016 who are just still prima donnas or still have attitudes and egos about, I don't want to communicate with you directly. I'll go through this middle person. And it, it infuriates me, but at the same time I go, Hey, that's just how the world works. Certain bands are mm-hmm. stuck in their sort of era and they refuse to get out of it because someone has just decided to say, hey, we're not going to tell them it's no longer 97 anymore. Um, but they still treat it that way. And some can get away with it, which is cool. But the bands that I work with directly are the best because um, like Taking Back Sunday is one of those bands. I work with the label directly. But every now and again, the management or the one of the guys in the band was email me and go, dude, that comp was really cool. Thanks, man. That's all you need to float your boat for like another week going, all right, I'm not slogging right. along. Just creating stupid ideas, hoping one sticks. When management or someone hits you up, it's like awesome. And then when they come to town, you get to connect with them, hang out with them. They go, "Oh, dude, that was amazing," or whatever. So it's, it's really cool. Well, that's why I was wondering because there's generally a lot of feedback that you know doesn't um, get translated back. A lot of times when you have to go through, for lack of a better term, committee. Sure. Um, so you know, I was wondering how that process worked. Um, now when it comes to working with someone like Kevin Gillespie, I mean, you know, being a, being a chef is a creative endeavor in its own right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've worked in restaurants all through college and, you know, I got to see how that process worked. And I mean, nobody was on that level, but there were, you know, there were a couple CIA graduates that I worked for. And it was just, it was amazing to see how much time and creativity and thought they put into their restaurant as a whole is that something where he's you know relying on you because he knows hey this isn't my strong point you know i want to do this but i have no idea how to do it or is he really hands-on and you know has brings all these ideas to the table it's interesting the restaurant world is one of those last areas i never really worked in there's a handful of areas like i've always wanted to design a beer label or a wine label it hasn't happened yet um, yeah, it's one of those like cool. That'll be that'll make me happy kind of things. Uh, but when I got to connect with Kevin, believe it or not, uh, it was they kind of brought me into a meeting that was just about creating T-shirts for the restaurant. And I was like, "All right, I'm here for a T-shirt meeting. This is going to be whatever. It'll be fine." Then they're like, "Hey, change of plans. We're opening up a brand new restaurant. Quick, can you get me new logo branding, the whole deal in like the next couple of weeks?" And you're like, "Ah." I don't know what to do. I need this hustle hard, but like I knew Kevin from TV. But what happened was 
in in these meetings with Kevin, we talk business for a little bit, and then Kevin and I'd be like, "Hey, did you ever see this one band live?" And next thing you know, all we're doing is talking about shows we went to growing up. He kind of grew up in mm-hmm. the punk hardcore world here in, in Metro Atlanta, and um, everything just kind of devolves into stupid music conversation between Kevin and I. <laughs> but that being said, Kevin has super strong opinions, and it's like really. Um, and really creative, a brilliant ideas. That's why he's a brilliant chef. And like his food, mm. no joking aside, like he just knocks my socks off. Like he created this thing a few years back called the Closed on Sunday Chicken Sandwich, which is his take on a Chick Fil A sandwich. And you're nice. like, all right, Chick Fil A has pretty much perfected the chicken sandwich. Would you agree? It's pretty doggone awesome. I would. There was there were several years in college I would not have been okay. with you, but that was because I worked at Chick Fil A, uh, yes. and I got so sick of <laughs> eating Chick Fil A. Because one of the beautiful things of working at Chick Fil A is every shift you get a free chicken sandwich. That's a win. It it is <laughs> until you've had so many chicken yeah. sandwiches <laughs> in a row. <laughs> You're still paying for that penalty now. Yeah. 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 Very much so. Yeah. The Lipitor uh, prescription <laughs> is proving that. Well, so. Kevin came up with a sandwich, and and you're like, all right, how can you best Chick-fil-A? And somehow he did it in this little microscopic sandwich. And, like, one bite blows your mind to the point where, like, you know, people jokingly say, like, smack your mama good. Like, mm-hmm. I had lunch with my mom a few weeks ago at, at Revival, and I thought, I might punch my mom in the face. This is that good. Uh, <laughs> I did not. But I'm sure she's yeah, she, she has all her teeth, so she's good. No, it was just, like... You forget that food can be made amazing and, like, not change lives, but it'll change your mood and change your vibe. And so that sort of creative spark and creative energy he approaches food with, um, he comes to me with creative ideas and um, and works with me on the design of a lot of things we work on um, mm-hmm. it, it, with that same passion. And his ideas, nine times out of ten, are like, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. Let's go down this path. Because he he's always thinking. He's always kind of scheming and kind of come up with cool ideas. Um, cause one of the things we found his restaurant gun show does extremely well in merchandise. I, I liken it to a ba- a big band on tour. Like he sells tons and tons of t-shirts. Like it's, really? it's not, uh, I, when I think of a restaurant that sells t-shirts, I think of like the old, uh, hard rock cafe. There's a hard yeah. rock cafe, Cancun. You're like, ah, oh, sweet. You went on vacation. Good job. But gun show sells just tons of shirts to the point where the minute we order them, we're almost half out. And we do lots of kind of takes on Atlanta culture and, and just subcultures. And we have a shirt that kind of knocks on the Misfits logo a little bit. That's uh, probably, I don't know, bleep that out. But uh, but <laughs> it's one of those things where it just sells hand over fist and it's crazy. And so because that allows us a lot of interesting things to do, like instead of making one shirt a season, we'll make five or six and just let's go nuts on this one. And mm-hmm. Kevin wanted to do like a camo shirt. He likes to hunt. So he wanted to do like a camo shirt with all these crazy colors. And we just couldn't execute it in time. But we're kind of always right. we were like, there's the one for one day. It's this camo shirt we're going to do for like hunting. And he just <laughs> has these crazy ideas and crazy ideas for restaurants. There's a bunch of stuff coming down the pike for this year, knock on wood, that if it gets executed, it'll be like mad genius as a restaurant and a food mm-hmm. concept. It's kind of odd. Cool. I just feel insanely lucky to like have hitched my wagon to a dude like that and now we're friends like he'll text me before service if you they do this thing every couple months called hired guns where they'll bring a chef uh-huh. in uh, a, a celebrity chef just a nice a f- amazing chef from somewhere get, else get yeah, get chef. Chef. like brian baltaggio from that season of yeah, top chef yeah. is going to be coming in this week or next week and he'll he'll text me like the night of and go dude we need energy in this restaurant give me five metal albums now and I'll I'll text him like five metal albums, and I'll go in the next day, and he'll be like, dude, I got shut down. I couldn't play this uh, cult leader record. They wouldn't let me play it anymore. It's like, oh, sorry, man. And but that's the kind of kind of relationship we have and friendship we have, but also the connection to creativity and music. It kind of just permeates all that we do in our relationship and uh, kind of hanging out and working together. Cool. And so some of the work you've done together, I, I know. Um... I just blanked on which cookbook it was. It's the Pure Pork. Pure Pork Awesomeness. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. The one that has been sitting in my Amazon wish list forever, and I keep forgetting to order it because things come up that I actually like. Yeah. Well, I'll send you one. I've got a couple in my house. I'll send you one. (laughs) Yeah, no worries. Um, 
But so, you know, at, at that point, had you ever done anything? Did you do the full book design or did you do just inserts and things like that? And then the publisher did the book design itself. Uh, publisher did the layout based on the stuff I'd created. Kevin wanted me to do the full book, but it just, there was no, there wasn't enough budget there. Um, sure. And some of the stuff that his publisher had tried to do in-house was not quite me- hitting the mark. And mm-hmm. it was kind of funky. And so he's like, dude... Do the cover, do the back jacket, do some insert pages, do kind of some aesthetic feel, and that's kind of what I did for that book. But it was a hoot. Um, I didn't get to. I, it was nice. I didn't get to do the tedium of laying out text and making sure everything was kerned properly and all that. But I got to do the fun stuff of kind of giving it like an overall vibe and a look. So, you, so you kind of created the style for them to build off. Yeah. Of. yeah, yeah. There were some things kind of set in motion, but I kind of brought this whole look that he wanted. Like he's like, look. I want it to look like an old backwoods barbecue smoker kind mm-hmm. of pit. Help me bring that look into this. Yeah, I, I think that's awesome. I, I I definitely drool over that book. Uh, not just for the layout, but for the recipes and stuff in it. Every time I'm yeah. like at Books A Million or Barnes & Noble. <laughs> it, it's awesome. There's a lot of good stuff. And there's even like an addendum book we made of Kevin's. Of oh, Kevin, really? I'll send you one too. Kevin's drawings of three impossible or next to impossible pork dishes. And one of them is like full on build your own pit and do your own whole hog barbecue. And he does step-by-step instructions, oh, that is but awesome. it's doggone near impossible. So that's why I never made it to the book. And he's mm-hmm. like, let's publish this anyway. So we made our own little in-house pamphlet and it's pretty nuts. The, the cooking nerd in me um, just loves that idea. Uh, the financial part of me says I could never afford to build. Oh that. no, and it's it's simple. It's like rebar and cinder block, but not only right. is it financially kind of sort of exhausting, it's time wise. It's it's insane. Uh, oh, yeah. There's a PBS show now calls it uh, Barbecue with Franklin or Franklin with Barbecue. It's the guy who runs Franklin Barbecue. Yeah, the Aaron, Aaron Franklin. Franklin yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. He, I just watched a recent episode where he builds his own smoker. And I'm just watching mm-hmm. this, and I think it took like a day and a half to build it, and then like another day and a half to smoke the whole pig, just to have a party. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, I don't have that kind of time. That that's the way I am. I've got a uh, a knockoff big green egg in the backyard, yeah. and the the six hours I devote to smoking smoking a Boston butt with that, just um, while it turns out wonderful. By hour three, I'm like, can this be? Done I know, already? and that's one of those I things wanna, that you. I want to go like out somewhere and do something. But that's <laughs> the beauty. That's the addiction of smoking and like have doing the barbecue vibe, especially here in the South, where like you realize oh, yeah. that is part of everything we're doing here. Uh, and people like to just sit, drink Coors Lights by their smoker, and like stoke the coals, making sure it's up to temp. Come back six hours later, and they're like 43 beers in. But hey, they're gonna make a nice meal for the family. And I think that's kind of awesome. Yeah, I do too. So, you know, the, one of the other things you talked about was the side screen printing project that uh, you did with all the uh, the bugs on there. Oh, yeah. You know, take, so, you know, taking all the stuff that you've done as a whole, how does that translate into doing fun screen printing projects? The screen printing thing was kind of really born out of also loving, like, show posters and being upset. Again, mm-hmm. it comes back to music where you just, like, you go to a show and you're like, that poster's amazing. You pick it up. Um and a buddy and I just were like, let's start doing this. I hired him one day to help me print some posters for an art show I was doing. And then I was like, dude, do you want to keep doing this and kind of keep tooling around and keep playing around with this and um, screen printing? But having my daughter and just life taking the different changes and stuff, like we kind of had to shelf the whole thing because it's so tedious to screen print. And now the screen printing is so cool and that a lot of cool younger dudes are doing it. I just sub out mm. to them. Like as much as I love the kind of like analog of pulling the screen and all that stuff, the stress of getting emulsion timed right and all that, I'm like, oh, I don't have enough time in my day. So, so you know, you you mentioned your daughter there. How? Because I have kids mm-hmm. too. I've got twin six year olds. Um, how is that kind of ch- as I both <laughs> there? Um, how has that changed your process and kind of how you structure your day of, you know, getting into things? Sure. When I first got into the design side of life, people always assumed I was a night owl and that was really weird. Somehow coming from the youth ministry background where you work a ton and you don't get paid very well, but your hours are crazy. You're paid to hang out with kids. You got long nights and all this stuff. There was always a huge right. emphasis on family time, a couple of days off, 
Like really rigidly structure that stuff into your life because if you don't do that, you will just completely fry out. So mm-hmm. I brought that with me to the design game and when I kind of started doing fun with robots on my own out of my house, as soon as my wife would come home at six, seven o'clock at night, this is before kids, day's done. On the rare occasion, I would grind through a project because a West Coast client needed something by seven. But I just always had it in me to just go, as soon as the day is done, like it's done and it can be tackled tomorrow short of any rare emergency. Now that my daughter's in this um, daycare that I need to pick her up by like six o'clock, come Mm -hmm. five o'clock, shutting everything down. And when I walk away from my computer short of an emergency, that's it. I pick up my kid. I'm not, you can't communicate with me really until about eight o'clock until after she's finally to sleep. After she's mm-hmm. punched me in the face a couple times and screamed for more milk, and I got to go potty and all this junk, um, everything to drag exactly, out actually yeah. into bed. So the process yeah. starts at seven. She's finally in bed by eight thirty. Yeah. So it has always been structured in a place, and I try just to then with the rest of the night just chill, hang out with my wife, eat some food, catch up on TV, mm-hmm. catch up on news, catch up on the day. And so luckily, I don't have that. Like, well, I'm going to go back to work and work till two or three in the morning because. I always tell my buddies who are like 23 years old and they're living life out, rocking and rolling, doing the whole deal on the road and going to shows every night at clubs and stuff. I'm like, no matter when you have a kid, you have to like change a diaper at 6 a.m. That is, that is your job or you have to get them out of bed. Like, and if you're hungover, if you're just super, if you just went to bed 20 minutes before tough, you have to do it. Yeah. Parenting doesn't stop because you feel no, exactly. And there's been nights where I would come home hanging out with the boys, like just rip roaring drunk, and then uh, kids start screaming at six in the morning. My wife goes, "You're up," and I'm just like, "Oh my gosh, I'm dying. My head split." But that's what it is. And you do a couple of those mornings, you're like, "Okay, I'm just gonna take it easy on the booze for a while." Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm kind. Of, I'm, I think that's neat that you structure your day because I know a lot of freelancers, even people who have families. Don't always time management is sure. tough, and that structuring your day where it sounds like you structure your day kind of like a typical nine to five almost, where you know you get your kid up in the morning, you get her off to daycare, and then you go pick her up at five. So you've got normal nine to five working business hours, and then the rest of that time you set aside for you and your family. I think that's pretty awesome, and you know that that's a tough thing to do for a lot of people. Yeah, it's it's tough, but if you kind of see it in your wife's eyes if she's like, hey, you, I need you to be present. Or if your wife gives your kid a bath and you're like, I wasn't there for that, it kind of eats away mm. you a little bit a couple nights in a, in a row. So you're like, something needs to change. And I try to work super hard during the day and grind it out to the point, to the detriment of like, remember my buddy Luke when I first started, I'm like, what design advice do you have for me? He's like, never eat lunch at your desk. Like that was one of his silly things, and I'm like, I'll never do it. Yeah, I'm smash cut to eating a bowl of ramen at my desk, just trying to grind through, answer emails, and go, oh, it's on YouTube today. Um, but those kind of things, if you're working hard through the day and you put your time in, like you should, you've earned the rest of your night. That's how I see it, and I try to keep it that way. Yeah, that that's that's kind of how I am. I mean, like I said before, I've got the luxury of I've got a nine to five job and then you know i can pick and choose freelance projects i want but it's you know for my wife who's also a designer like i mentioned um and our our kids are homeschooled now um which i think is an interesting decision on our part some no kidding (laughs) um (laughs) there's a long story behind that i'll tell you (laughs) i've got a lot of opinions on homeschool only based on the weirdos i've run into but anyway sorry never mind that's neither here nor there (laughs) believe me my i'm sure my based on their parents that my children will turn out to be completely that's good so only the good kind and i'm okay with that kind of weirdo that's okay exactly um but it is it is tough finding that balance of you know when to do things and when you know because you've got to you've got to have time to recharge as a person too, um, you know because you can't just work all the time and then spend go spend all the time with your sure. kids because then you've got no personal time. So so how do you kind of work in that balance too? Do you you know try to schedule time to make it in with friends and and I mean I know as a parent that gets harder and harder to yeah. do a lot of times. But it's super tough. I mean. I do my best never to work on the weekends, but there's probably, as my wife knows, she'll kind of give me like, all right, 
five or ten weekends a year you can grind some work out and do that. Um, but it's nice to put it away. But, you know, as a freelancer, your phone always rings and there's always emergencies. Mm -hmm. And, like, I work with, like, the Shaky Knees and Shaky Beats Music Festival. And the way music festivals run is, like, like everything's on fire. Like, yeah. and so you have to be present when you need to be present. But then when it's not a problem, you can just totally chill. Um, you have to kind of – it just takes time to figure out when those times are coming. And sometimes you just don't know. But the best to try to kind of figure out when the wave's going to crash on you or when you can ride the wave. And mm. But as far as making time for other people and, and for friends, a lot of Mondays, a bunch of creative – I talked about Creative South. A bunch of creative dudes in Atlanta. We've been getting together every Monday at this barbecue place. And we just get – cheap beer and some good barbecue and hang out and kind of hash out. And my wife knows like, Hey, that's your outlet to hang out with the dudes, go up there, have some cheap $2 beers and, um, have a good night. And that happens probably a couple times a month. And that's a really good way to blow off steam. Yeah. Cool. Well, I got, I got a couple, um, rapid fire right, questions for you here at the end. Where did fun with robots? The name comes. That's a great from? question. I, someone asked me that today. Uh, it came from when I was in college, I was in a bunch of hardcore and punk bands. On the side, I would play with like computer loops and drum machines and stuff just because I thought electronic music was interesting. And I called my side project Fun with Robots because I had like a computer, a laptop, and I had like a couple drum, a Korg analog drum synths and drum machines. And I just called uh -huh. it Fun with Robots. And so when it came time to start my own business and buy a dot com, my creative design buddy Brady was like, You should call it Fun with Robots. I'm like, Done. That's it. Yeah, awesome. I don't really like it per se, but it is what it is. Really? I think it's Here's a great name. It's great. I could call it Brian Manley Design Industries or Design Studio or whatever, but I also want the name to kind of give off that like this dude's hopefully fun and hopefully going to do mm -hmm. something a little bit wackier than like an interesting looking spreadsheet, you know? Yeah, and, and I mean that's part of what I like the name. And it also, you know, I think there's something to be said for people who go out under their own name. Oh, yeah. Um and I mean, that works for a lot of people, but a lot of times it's, it's, I think, especially when you're getting out there and starting, if you're going out under your own name and, you know, you're trying to sell to somebody who maybe doesn't understand design or, as well, they look at it as that same way that I explained earlier of, you know, you know, a freelancer is an unemployed person. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and if you have a name like Fun with the yeah. Robots, then it sounds like you're an established business and you've put some sort of thought into yeah. that. You know, and, and there's a reason behind that. So I, I think that's that's one of those where it works well for people. Oh, cool. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's just tough, though, when you're trying to get, like, legitimate clients to pay you and cut the check to phone with, fun with robots. They're kind of like, do I have this right that it should be made out to this? Are you, like, some traveling circus? Like, what's happening? It's like, no, you make the check out. Okay, you're good. Yeah. Yeah. LLC. Yeah, exactly. Well, my, my my creative guy or my creative guy, my attorney buddy, who's a neighbor, made it made me incorporated. So I don't even know what incorporated means, but it sounds way more professional. So I'm uh -huh. no longer I'm not LLC. I'm incorporated. So I guess that means I could have a high rise building with my name on the front one day. I don't know. I'm sure it has <laughs> something to do with a different tax rate. Well, oh shit, that... really? Am I gonna get taxed? Oh no. Oh. Uh, <laughs> we'll yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I'm sure a lot of IRS accountants will be listening to it. No, company. I have a C my CPA <laughs> was like, "Why would he do this?" I'm like, "He's your he, he referred me to you," and I'm like, <laughs> "He goes, look, I'll take care of it." So luckily, I'm the same as an LLC. I just am incorporated. So anyway, so it's just a legal I guess I don't, I don't know. He's also the same attorney. Right. We can leave this out, but he's the same attorney who recently I said, "Can you help me with like the language of a retainer for this uh -huh. business I'm working with?" And he's like, just boom, in 20 minutes, knocked out this thing. Smash cut to three weeks later, it was $400 bill in the mail. I thought he was doing me a bro favor. And uh -huh. he, he sent me like a, he sent sent me a, a bill. lawyer bill. I'm like, man, no wonder lawyers are the scum of the earth. Like, they are just <laughs> ruthless. But I guess they got to, you know, pay to keep their big high-rise buildings up, I guess. Well, if he asks for a uh, logo from you, then you can uh, send him a logo <laughs> exactly. for it. Ah, it's went to six grand. I'm sorry. I thought about your logo during the shower, so I'm going to bill you for it. Anyway. Exactly. So, you know, you had the Polaroid side project that you did for yourself. Do you have any other side projects you're working on? Not really at the moment. Um, I'm just trying to – I'm really super busy with 
with just basic nine to five work. I do these, I, I stumbled upon this stupid little design I did kind of on a goof that says like, I like my coffee like I like my metal, black. And it's like a black metal logo. And um, mm -hmm. I'll get you a mug, by the way. It's I'll bring a bunch sure, of creative stuff. You. But uh, I put these up, I, I printed some mugs, put them up online, and black metal fans have been eating it up. And I just sell a lot of them through the holidays, throughout the year. And as far as side projects go, that's like one of those passive income sort of things you hear a lot of designers talk about. Um, this is oh, the yeah. weird passive income thing that I did not want to be a thing. Because packing and shipping a one-pound mug daily or every couple days is the weirdest thing ever. But hey, people dig it. And I send, I send out mugs all the time from my house or from the post office here in Atlanta. That's yeah. awesome. So uh, what's on the horizon for you? What's on the horizon? The horizon really is just keep grinding on work. There's a lot of cool stuff coming down the pike with Kevin Gillespie stuff. Um, and, and the shaky knees, shaky beats thing is happening right now. So Atlanta, that's kind of a big deal with me. Uh, our big deal with uh, Atlanta and the music scene. And luckily, Tim, who runs Shaky Knees and Shaky Beats, has kind of said, you're my guy. Let's do this. Let's knock this thing out. So um, I've been working with him for years, and it's been really cool. Um, but nothing really new. It's just kind of more of the same, which I know sounds such a boring answer. But between having a kid and just trying to keep a business afloat and pay the bills, because as you know, kids' schooling and things of that nature are wildly expensive. Um, uh-huh. And so, yeah, if you think lawyers, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Be a Send preschool. A yeah. That's the, that's the racket of all rackets. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's really just keep grinding. I've got some records in the work. I mean, again, a lot of the stuff I work on, it, it's, it's a lot of it's in secrecy and then all of a sudden it's out and then it's moving on. Um, some sure. cool records for some cool bands and some artwork for some cool stuff, but nothing I can talk about, nothing I can post online really, but yeah. Anyway. <laughs> At least not. Till exactly. it's hey, that, you know, there's no, nothing wrong no, with it's, that. As long as you're uh, still working and yeah, absolutely, on. yeah, it's cool. Well, very cool. Um, and and lastly, where can people find you online? All right, they can find me online, uh, funwithrobots.com or at Brian Manley on most of the social networks: Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I think that's about it. Yeah, man. Cool. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to me, and I uh, hope to see you at Creative. Absolutely, Stop. I will be there with bells on. <laughs> All right, we're gonna hit stop on.